Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Extra Time, a web-only sports program from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. In this week's edition, the stocks of New Zealand's world number one amateur golfer Lydia Ko continue to rise on the international stage. The reigning Olympic and world champion Mahi Drysdale defends his decision to go to the rowing world champs despite failing to reach the semi-finals. Otago prepares for its first defence of the Ranfurly Shield in six decades. Jellyfish and raw sewage are just a couple of the challenges ahead for Wellington swimmer Casey Glover as he attempts to swim the English Channel. And the All Whites head off to Saudi Arabia as they build up to their qualifier to reach the World Cup in Brazil next year. Lydia Coe's climbed to the highest world ranking ever held by a New Zealand golfer following this week's win at the Canadian Open. The 16-year-old from the Gulf Harbour Country Clubs jumped 12 places on the official world rankings to number 7. It's the highest ranking held by a New Zealand golfer since rankings were introduced. The women's rankings began in 2006 and the men's rankings have been in place since 1986. Michael Campbell had been the previous highest ranked New Zealander. In 2005, when he won the US Open and the World Match Play Championship, he reached a career-high ranking of 12. Coe's next tournament is the Evian Masters in France, where she'll seek to become the youngest major champion in golf. Lydia Coe spoke to Bridget Tunnicliffe after her latest success. I was very nervous inside, and I had to do some breathing exercises that you know, my sports psychologist um, David you know, gave me. And uh, I think that kind of helped me through it. And um, uh, without that, I'll probably be very anxious. And, uh, yeah, my heart was definitely beating fast. Are you someone that sort of talks to yourself, um, you know, between shots? Were you sort of um, egging yourself on? What was the message to yourself? No, I said just be calm, just be confident and uh, just play one shot at a time. You said that last year you didn't see last year's win coming. Did you see this year's coming? Um, no, um, but in saying that, I was only one off the lead uh, yesterday, and uh, you know today I said, you know, just play my own game. If somebody plays better, no, you can't do anything about it. Just play your own game, and you know, come off feeling proud. And uh, it was really good to you know win at the end of the day. A lot of sports people will say that defending a title is much harder than winning it the first time. How have you found it? I can't even remember much of last year. It went really fluidly. Um, but you know, this week, it seems a bit different. And, uh, you know, my mom and I said, yeah, it's, it's so hard to defend. Not many people have defended their title before. So, yeah, uh, I knew it, it was possible, but it was... It was a small percentage. So what do you think it is about the Canadian Open? Is it the golf course you like? Um, you know, two, two titles in a row is pretty amazing. Um, yeah, I like the golf course here, and I like the golf course back there, uh, Vancouver Golf Club and here, Royal Mayfair Golf Club. 
and uh, both times the course was in really great condition. So, uh, yeah, you know, it was it was a course where I felt really happy to play on. Does it grate you at all, Lydia, that you're going to miss out on, you know, you miss out on that $300,000 check? No, um, you know, it happened last year and lots of people laughed, but, you know, I know it's not coming my way anyway. Um, and Kareen played some awesome golf out there this week, so, uh, you know, she deserves it. And uh, the other players uh, at the end of the tournament, have they, you know, congratulated you? Yeah, um, you know, I got some water sprayed on me by Danielle, Jess, and IK. So, uh, you know, um, I, was, I was pretty surprised. I was trying to run away from it, but, you know, I didn't want to run on the greens. <laughs> and you were asked after you won by the press again if you were thinking, you know, are you any closer to turning professional? Are you getting a bit sick of the question? Yeah, I am. Um, if somebody doesn't ask, I'm like, wow, why didn't they ask that question? And, uh yeah, I don't know when I'm going to turn pro, um, and uh, we're we're thinking about it, but no, we never. I don't know. <laughs> That's two-time Canadian Open winner Lydia Ko talking to Bridget Tunnicliffe. The Olympic and five-time world champion Mahi Drysdale is defending his decision to compete at the World Rowing Champs despite failing to get past the quarterfinals. Drysdale took a year off from the sport after his London Games success, and only resumed training three months ago. He struggled through the world champs in Korea with a fractured rib after being knocked off his bike during a training ride a few days before the event began. He concedes, though, that it's not the way he intended starting a new Olympic cycle. Had I um, you know, been in any, others of the semi, uh, any of his quarters today, I would have made the semis, and, and then, um, you know, then it would have been a, a race, and, and you know, I still could have made the A-final. And you know, had, had I done that, um, it would have, you know, that would have been a, a, a fairly good year on... On limited preparation, you know, I guess just things haven't haven't quite gone my way in Korea, and it's just one of those things you sort of have to roll for punches, and and uh, sometimes in sport that's the reality of it. So, um, you know, I guess you just gotta gotta say, well, uh, you know, we'll, we'll put this down as a, a learning experience. A strange feeling because I mean you're hardly used to to losing. Before this, you know the. Worst result I've ever had at a, a World Champs is a silver medal. So, um, you know, it's quite a quite a uh, a big a big uh, I guess step down. So, um, you know, that that is disappointing. But um, you know, you again, you just got to look at the the preparation I've done this year, and and obviously, uh, you know, that that wasn't enough. Does it in some way though inspire you or drive you on, knowing what this feeling is like? Yeah, I guess you know when I've, I've got to look at this year as as a you know a complete year and and you know what was the what was what was I trying to achieve and and you know I've achieved everything that that I wanted to um, and obviously um, you know the the rowing uh, has suffered because of that but um, you know this was a, always a, a four year plan um, it was always a risk by taking that time off and um, and you know that's that's I guess uh, you know finished with a, a worse result than, than I'd hoped. But, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, that certainly going forward, you know, I don't I don't want to be in this position again. And, um, you know, if, if I get a tough draw like I did this time, um, you know, in, in the past it's, it's never been an issue for me. And, and, you know, I know I've got to get back to that point. So, you know, I've got to, I've got to go and train, train my butt off and, and know that I've got to be good enough that 
I can overcome anything. And, and you know, two nine, I had a stress fracture. Um, you know, last year I fell off my bike and, and hurt my shoulder. And, you know, both those years, um, you know, I was, I was strong enough to, to come back and, and overcome it. Um, you know, this year fractured my rib and, and I wasn't, you know, just didn't have that, that base. So, yeah, I, I guess um, from that point of view, it is inspiring and, and you know, I know uh, what it takes, um, you know, to what I have to do to, to get back on top. Uh, I was just thinking uh, the feeling that you've got from this, has it gone, yes, I still want to keep rowing, keep racing, or maybe it doesn't feel as bad as you might have thought and you, you go, well, hold on, do I do I actually want to continue? Certainly, I, I want to be back on top, and and you know it's it's not a not a nice feeling. I I, I don't like losing at all, um, but you know you've got to got to look at the you know weigh it all up and and look at the the preparation, and and it's pretty easy to, for me to um, you know basically uh, pigeonhole this. This is the reason this happened is is lack of preparation, and um, so you know going forward, I've I've got to make sure I, I don't make those those same decisions or, or you know, you could call it a mistake, but, um, you know, this was, this was in a, a four-year plan um, and, you know, this is, uh, this is just, just one of those stepping stones and, you know, I'm sure I'll, um, I'll learn from this and, and certainly don't want to be in, in this position, uh, you know, over the ne- any of the next three years. You, you talk about learnings there. Last year, the shoulder on the bike. This year, the ribs. Are you getting the feeling you should be staying away from the bike? Again, it's a, a really tough one. Obviously, um, you know they've they've been uh, you know very unfortunate. It's actually the third crash I've had in three years, all all around the time of of the World Champs or the Olympics. Um, but it's also you know an in- integral part of my my training and, and program. And um, so you know, I, I need to I need to do the work on the bike. Um, there's uh, you know not another good alternative. And so you know it's, it's really um, you know trying to find ways I guess to to mitigate the risk, um, and and you know, unfortunately, it's just uh, been you know three times where cars haven't seen me, and um, have you know none of the times has, has it has it been me in the wrong, and you know that's just uh, you know I, I guess you put it down to a bit of bad luck, um, but you know again it's it's about you know mitigating those risks, and and had I had a proper preparation, um, you know this this probably wouldn't have happened, and. Um, it wouldn't have derailed my um, my tilt at the title. Oh. Is it making your coach nervous when you, you head out on the bike, or are you getting nervous? Or, <laughs> um, you know, well, well, I haven't been out since. Um, just uh, bikes on the wind trainer, but um, yeah, you know, I, I guess it's something we're going to have to look at uh, over the the next um, few years, and maybe uh, you know, looking at at uh, trying to trying to find safer places to ride. Um, and you know whether it's uh, even you know I don't, I don't know what else I can do, but um, you know somehow uh, try to make myself a little bit more visible so uh, cars don't don't uh, pull in front of me. You're gonna have to go fluoro from top to bottom. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe uh, get a safety vehicle or something to yeah, uh, your pilot vehicle. me around the around the road. <laughs> I was talking to Olympic rowing champion Mahi Drysdale. You're listening to Extra Time, a web-only sports programme from Radio New Zealand Sport. I'm Stephen Hewson. The Otago rugby team's preparing to defend the Ranfurly Shield just a week after winning it for the first time in almost 56 years. Hawke's Bay will try to steal the prize known as the Log of Wood at Dunedin Stadium on Sunday afternoon. 
But as our Otago reporter Ian Telfer discovered, the Shield may have already done its work for the rugby union. The celebration of Otago's Ranfurly Shield victories gone on all week and all over the province. The Otago Rugby Union's general manager, Richard Kenley, says that's building a lot of pressure on the team to withstand the first challenge. Oh, look, I've been asked by people, does, does keeping the Ranfurly Shield mean more than winning the championship? And through the media, people ringing up says, to them, it, it does. That means more. Now, already, for the first defence, we've sold more tickets than we sold for the semi-final against Tasman here at Forsyth Bar last year. So, so to me, it does say that there is a real passion around the Ranfurly Shield. The Otago Stadium's already half sold. 12,000 tickets have been snapped up by fans well aware the fickle nature of the competition means a single successful challenge would see the logger wood depart as suddenly as it came. But Mr Kinley says the contest couldn't have happened at a better time as the cash-strapped Otago Union rebuilds from the brink of liquidation 18 months ago. It's some small way to go back and thank all the people that have been a part of, of the journey for the last two years and also now if, if we, you know, we do sell a lot of tickets and we get people through the gate, that gives us a chance to maybe start looking towards developing some of the programs that we'd um, wanted to do in the past but hadn't had the, the, the ability to, to put in place. One person touched by the victories, a former Otago captain from the 1990s, David Latter, who never thought he'd get to touch the shield as he did this week in Balclutha. He says there'll be huge public disappointment if the team loses the prize, but it wouldn't really matter. At the end of the day, you know, these guys have gone and, and done what no one else has done for 56 years in the province. So, you know, um, already they've, they've, they've ticked one of those milestones and, you know, no one wants to be the one-week wonders, so I, th I think they'll do, the, they'll do the province proud. Last week's celebrations are likely to be repeated up north should Otago lose. Hawke's Bay has not held the shield since 1969. Hawke's Bay's head coach, Craig Philpott, says the team doesn't have to be told what a big match it'll be. We're quite fortunate, I guess, that we've got some players on our side that have, that have played a lot of Super Rugby and have played in places like Loftus-Versfeld in front of you know, 60,000, 70,000 screaming South Africans. So those guys are really valuable to us this week in terms of just helping our, our less experienced guys prepare for, for what that might be like. Otago's assistant coach, Case Muse, says the team's expecting a strong challenge. A bit of fire, a bit of toughness. Um, you know, they're in the same boat we were in last week. So they'll be coming down here wanting, wanting to, to take it off us. But um, I'm sure they'll meet a, um, you know, a brick wall when, when they get here. But Case Muse says the team's strategy is not to get the players too hyped about the shield and just put in the best game of rugby they can muster on Sunday. In Dunedin, Ian Telfer. Jellyfish, raw sewage and shipping, besides hypothermia and the 34-kilometre distance, are among the perils the Wellington swimmer Casey Glover will have to overcome when he attempts to swim the English Channel next week. The 26-year-old Glover holds the record for the fastest crossing of Cook Strait, which he set five years ago, completing the 26-kilometre distance in 4 hours, 37 minutes and 56 seconds, taking almost half an hour off the previous best. The first documented crossing of the English Channel was in 1875 and it took 21 hours and 45 minutes. The current record is 6 hours and 55 minutes set last year by the Australian Trent Grimsey. And that's a time Glover believes he can beat. Since 2008 it's been on my mind and it was kind of waiting until I was old enough and, and also um, mentally ready to, to step it up and travel over there. 
Um, I did want to do it a little bit earlier, but my uh, played up with shoulder injury over a couple of years, um, and it started in 2010. So then I booked booked in for the channel in 2000, uh, late 2011, uh, just before the Olympic trials for 10k. So the plan was to make the Olympics, but uh, fell short. So then I solely focused on the English Channel training from April 2012. The Cook Strait would seem to present a, a tougher challenge, is that the case? Um, they're, they're kind of two different uh, kettles of fish you could say. Um, so the Cook Strait is shorter uh, but it's a lot more vicious with um, the, the tides and currents and how they work and so it's a lot more unpredictable on what can happen where uh, then the English Channel is further and it's generally a bit colder than the, the Cook Strait but luckily this year they've had a big heat wave so it's warmed it up quite nicely um, so I'm looking at swimming in 17 degrees where normally it would be around 15, 16 so um, I shouldn't get hypothermia <laughs> What's the time you're going to have to beat if you want to break the record there? Uh, so the record's 6 hours 55. Um, the difference where I'm with him to me is I'm doing it on a bigger tide. So there's a neat tide and a spring tide. and So I'm going on the, the bigger one and uh, it's going to be a lot more moving water. So hopefully that will um, I'll be able to swim fast enough to use it towards my advantage and, and give me a bit of a, a boost. Yeah. And where do you head off from and head to? Uh, so we're based in Dover, um, so I'll be training there for f- five days before my tide starts, getting used to the, the water over there, and then you start from Shakespeare Beach and you um, head straight for um, the point just south of uh, Wissant, which is close to Calais. As soon as I touch land I've got a... I've only got a 10 minute window to get back into the water and back onto the boat. The French don't really uh, approve of um, people swimming across the channel and so there's quite a bit of um, controversy there. How, how much training have you been doing doing for this? What's your typical week? Um, so I train eight times a week, um, either morning or evening, um, depending how my work's positioned on the day and I'll train about a, do about an 8k session and then I've got a couple of gym sessions as well just for strengthening and, and stabilising my, my shoulder as well. Throughout the summer season there was a lot of sea swims to test myself for the endurance I swam across Lake Taupo uh, so that was 41k that's um, where the English Channel is only 34k and the Cook Strait was 26 so um, by doing the Taupo it's also in fresh water and there's no tides or currents so it's a, a pure endurance swim and no, that, no salt either so no, yeah, no buoyancy yeah, yeah exactly and so uh, it was going to take quite a long time to do and so I started at 4.30am and, and finished in the afternoon and finished with a time of 10 hours and 52 minutes. Um, how, how do you cope but mentally? I mean, you must be pretty happy in your own company. Do you? What, what's going through your mind? Is you... Yeah, it's kind of like having a really boring job where you, those guys sitting at a desk doing 
Um, so it's like that, or uh, just yeah, being, um, and you just let your mind wander and you you uh, tell jokes to yourself and and um, what I because I'm sitting swimming next to the um, support crew and they're chatting away and so I'm like thinking up conversations and just yeah letting uh, letting the mind wander and every half hour you you stop for a quick drink or uh, a bit of food so you break the time up into those slots so just doing an extra half an hour doesn't seem that bad instead of doing swim for 11 hours or whatever how long it takes what's the plan after the the channel i mean do you look ahead to another project um, there's a bunch of ideas, but I'll, the plan is yeah, just to do the channel the best I can and kind of see to what happens after that, how it, it, it accumulates and um, may get into another sport or um, just find other swims to do. Yeah. But probably this will be the biggest, like the pinnacle I'd say. You've, you've had enough of the training, have you? Is it, how, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's only so much you can take, and and it's yeah, it's do you want to do it? And you've got to have that passion. And um, swimming for over 20 years now, um, a lot of early mornings, you you want to know what everyone else's life is like. <laughs> Casey Glover says there's a risk he won't even get his feet wet though as he only has a window of six days from the 5th to the 11th of September to make the swim, depending on the tides and the weather. The All Whites head to Saudi Arabia next week to play at a Four Nations tournament as part of their preparation for their final World Cup qualifier in November. The New Zealand coach Ricky Herbert's named one newcomer and a couple of surprises in his squad. The Waitakere City midfielder Jake Butler has been named in the squad for the first time, while midfielders Chris Bright and Chris James have been called in from their Finnish clubs. Bright and James last appeared for the All-Whites in 2008 and 2009 respectively, but will push for spots in the midfield with Michael McGlinchey and Dan Keat both ruled out of the tour. Marco Rojas and Shane Smeltz are also out with injury, but Herbert's expecting them to be fit for the World Cup qualifiers. Alex Coogan-Reeves asked Herbert just what he wanted to get out of the tournament, which also involves Saudi Arabia, Trinidad and Tobago and the United Arab Emirates. One, it's really good we can get the side together. We haven't, as you know, played since March, which was a long period of time not to be playing international football. Two, the majority of the sides are ranked around us anyway, and I think it's always hard to get an exact gauge on rankings. But historically what those sides have done... and teams that they've played against, um, you know, they'll be very, very good opposition for us. Does having it in that part of the world make it easier to get the players from the UK and things like that all together? Look, I think just from a, a travel, you know, perspective, I think logistically it's it's kind of in the middle, so that helps. Um, again, I guess irrespective of who we've got, where we were playing, the players would have come. Um, but this, you know, this does help everybody. Um, and, you know, from a travel point of view, it's great. Probably a little bit more less rest time for the players on their arrival and a chance to work a little more with them. We'll probably have just a standard couple of days leading into the first fixture, but I think because we're based in Riyadh now and, um, you know, you've got that stability, we're not moving as far as the second game is concerned, that it just gives us a little bit more time, even if it's away from the football pitch, just communicating about what we're looking to do and, and what we're looking to achieve come November. So, um, 
you know, it's just, I guess that stability side will be great for us. In terms of the games with your lineups, will you be looking to try a few different things, or do you sort of already have it in your mind, sort of who who you're going to want to be playing and sort of the way that you want to play? Yeah, like I think there's always that flexibility going into you know to a camp like this. I think the focus very strongly will be on November, and you know we've got a whole lot of information and footage on on potentially who that side could be, um, and you know we can communicate that through the squad and, and be very clear on on what we need to do in Saudi and, and in line of approaching the game in November as opposed to just going to Saudi to concentrate on them. You're sort of happy with uh, the depth of the squad that you've got? Yes, I am. I think, you know, that's that's ever-evolving and that's really good. Um, but we're only a couple of months away from November, so we've got 18 players going to, to Riyadh and I think that'll be a, a strong reflection. That, that number will probably be increased to around 20, um, coming into the November window, um, but I think you know the, the Saudi tournament is going to have a strong reflection on on who we will be picking. With the Andrew Durante situation, have there been an official word from FIFA on his status yet? Uh, no, we haven't. Uh, as far as I know, I haven't heard. But Andrew will be part of the side that travels to Saudi, um, and we just wait. Um, hopefully, in anticipation that uh, he gets the green light to continue on for the World Cup campaign. I think it's uh, probably as clear as saying, yes, he can play, or no, he can't. And um, I guess we're just waiting for that definitive answer. After the September, um, the September matches, what sort of time do you get with this with a squad leading into the games in November? Well, domestically, we'll work with, a, with a, just a local um, group of players, um, with the Wellington Phoenix players included, against the Phoenix in um, Rotorua in the back end of September. Um, and then in October, there are another two FIFA windows, which we're currently looking to fill as well, in which we get the main group together again for about a 10-day period. Right, so so you'll have uh, likely one more chance to sort of fine-tune things after these games? Yep, absolutely. So if we get any sort of hiccups in this one, as far as players can't come through injury, etc., that we have one more final window to access. That's all White's coach Ricky Herbert talking to Alex Coogan-Reeves. And that brings us to the end of Extra Time for another week. Remember, if you wish to contact us, you can email us at sport at radionz.co.nz. I'm Stephen Hewson. Bye for now. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.